I certainly became a much better improviser when I stopped improvising based on who I thought might be in the audience or what attachments I might have around the show. You know, what could come of the show? What might happen with the show? Will we all get discovered tonight? And it became more about, I want to be here now with these people playing. You know, these are my friends, and we're having a good time doing what we love to do. Nice. Dion, we're not talking to you right now, okay? (laughs) Just wait your turn. Use the raise your hand button if you want to talk. (laughs) I'll tell you what. Any talk of friendship and, and you know, co- collegial feeling back then, you're right. That has nothing to do with me. Oh, right. Wow. You weren't part of the group. I mean, you were standing next to the group. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Scott. On this episode, we've got Dion Flynn and Nate Starkey. The two men responsible for creating and performing in Shackled, a two-man improvisational show where Mr. Flynn and Mr. Starkey were shackled together and portrayed escaped convicts, a fully improvised play that was both dramatic and hilarious and everything you'd want in an improv show. We're going to talk about that show, their process, their thoughts on improv, their respective histories and how that informs their work as comedians, actors, and improvisers. This is the Shackled episode of the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. The following podcast is in no way related to Centralia, Pennsylvania. And now, direct from New York City, an island off the coast of America, it's the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. How do we sound? Great. Yeah, I could tell you're using a good mic, Dion. I'd like to hear... Yeah, but see, you see, hear. Nate, see, Nate is so sensitive. He's so good and sensitive. Like, he knows what I need right now. He knows what I'm actually asking for, <laughs> which is I want praise. I want praise for the quality of my mic for a minute or two. Or it does it 10 seconds. <laughs> but also, also, Dion, do, how do we sound? You, how do we You sound? guys, you sound really good. Does it seem like that we're both on, how do we sound? on good... Like a good mic, mm-hmm. like a good quality mic. It really sounds good. I mean, I'm really surprised. Hug I'm really bass. surprised. Do I sound bassy? <laughs> you sound like Count Basie. Better get that bass out of your voice. <laughs> you better get that bass out of your voice, son, <laughs> when you're speaking to me. Just promise you'll put that little bump in occasionally during our conversation. It's like, <laughs> yeah, show thing. That just picks the energy right up. <laughs> <laughs> so we played together. In various forms, maybe not all three of us together, but um, Big Black Car, Big Black Car 2 or BBC 2, Dion and I were in the Prince Albert Players, and you both have guested with Centralia. Together, didn't we did it, not that, I haven't done that many times, uh, but yeah. uh, I think Dion and I did it together once or twice, maybe. Yeah. Oh my God. See, this is the part. Okay, part of why I want to be here today, I think that the story of Shackled deserves one real good telling, and my memory is going. That's the other part. So, mm. so it's like I'm not. This is for the archives. This is for you know anybody who ever cares about this in the future. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I think shackled is like. I think someday it should become. Uh, it 
if there is justice in the universe, Shackled will be a cult classic someday. <laughs> People will discover it retroactively, and it'll be a big hit, maybe after we're dead or something. Well, that was always the hope. That was the original vision, was that after we die, this would become a hit. <laughs> yeah. So for, for people who are listening, I'm assuming everyone listening is a huge Shackled fan. But for those that don't know, Shackled uh, is an improvised show. Two people improvising, both in character. And the two characters were two guys who had escaped from prison and who were now Shackled together. And the show was inspired by the movie with Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis called The Defiant Ones from 1958, right? Actually... Actually, we've never seen The Defiant Ones. It's really inspired by the Stephen Baldwin movie that was very similar. No, but we watched um, the, the Defiant Ones. From the beginning, look, here's what I want to say about this. In the begin, From the beginning, we approached this really slow. We weren't like, we got to have a show by next week. We just started meeting um, and going really slow and layering on what this could be and maybe what, you know, the... So, so like that, I feel like I want to bring that part of it out too, because in that way, I had never. Re- what was the initial spark? This is Dion. This like... is Dion's brainchild. Okay, so Dion had an idea. Did you did you first say I got to work with Nate, or were you like I need to find someone to fill this? Room? No, it was always Nate. It was never. There was never anybody else in mind. Never, not once. <laughs> it was always Nate. I went right to Nate. Nate said, "That's a good idea. Let's start meeting." And we met one winter day in uh, a rehearsal studio. We lit- we like rented a rehearsal studio. We were like totally legit about it from the beginning. And uh, we started recording stuff. And Nate, look, bottom line is Nate has a way of pissing me off. And it, it it's, it's because I'm oversensitive, or it certainly was much more back then. And he's very intuitive. So even though it was very painful to have someone with that skill set around me, I knew it was gold because he could upset me like nobody. And it, it reminded me of and it reminded me of convicts. Oh, come on. That is not that is not. See, that's your memory going. You first of all, but you correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But you didn't discover that you hate me until we started working together. Isn't that true? Uh, no, no. I like I when you first invited me. When you first invited me to work to to do create something right, with you, right. we barely knew each other. Like I had, I hadn't even had opportunity to piss you off yet. Had I, or we might? Do I have? Here's it what it was. Here's what it was. And I told Nate this. Um, I watched Nate do a show at the People's Improv Theater, the first location right near UCB on 29th Street, and he really made me laugh. That was the bo- the bottom line of all of this is he really made me laugh and he was big and his voice was way too loud for what was going on on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like why is that dude why is that dude's voice project so well? It was like he had theater training or something. Uh, so I was like okay, I could I'm of the same size. So that was part of what attracted me to Nate. Funny and loud. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, we could work together, probably. That's honestly what I thought. And I wanted to work with him. I wanted to do something with him. Nate, how did you get so loud? Is it your years working in theme parks? Um, you know, I think that makes a good story. But I think the truth is that I'm just naturally loud. It's just genetically loud. Like, um, like a family reunion with on my mom's side of the family is like, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Things good? All right. 
Hey, Chris, how are you? Oh, excellent. Great. Great to hear it. Like, that's in like my wife hates my volume and like everyone hates my volume, but it's just genetic. I think so. Like, that's what made me good at the theme park thing is because I would never have vocal issues. Like Ashley nearly lost her. Ashley's my wife for anyone who doesn't know uh, nearly. And we met at Disney. Uh, she nearly lost her voice. She did lose her voice for a short time, but like she had like nodes and had to get surgery and it was like awful. And like people who do that performance, like in the open air yelling all day long and it was all day long. Um, it's very difficult on their voices. Not for me. I never had, I never have had any problems with that. And I think it's, so uh, it's like the volume was first and the, it lent itself to these other pursuits, I think. Okay, well, that's fascinating to me in two ways. First of all, I would have sworn, I'm glad we're doing this, you know, because I would have sworn that Nate's vocal strength came from working outside in the theme park, uh, at, at, just like you thought. The other thing I think is worth setting up. Well, as I said, that, that makes a better story. I should. No, no, but I'm so glad that you clarified it, that it's just a genetic, you're just a freak. And and that I I think it's, I honestly... You know, I, I loved him for his natural freakishness because I have a big voice. My dad's nickname for me when I was young was Mouth. He he would say, whenever I would upset my mother, mm. I would upset my mother. He would say, good going, Mouth. And you remember that documentary that I did about finding my yeah. real father? That was good going Mouth Productions because mm-hmm. my dad used to say, good going, Mouth. You know, whenever I would say something that was, uh, but see, this gets to the heart so, of it. So my question yeah, is. Go ahead. Is that because of your volume? Is that because of your volume or is that because you're a smartass? Both. It was the percept. Look, smartass, it means you know how to, you know, you're sensitive. So I knew what to say to upset anybody (laughs) but my mother in those cases when he would say, good going mouth. And that's the same quality that I'm accusing you of having. Because what is, what's in that quality is insight. You know, it's perception, it's perception and insight. So let's let's get your histories. Give me the one paragraph history. And what I'm what I'm interested in is what eventually got you to improv. Did you start with a love of comedy, with a love of theater, with a love of performance? You had a big mouth and everyone was calling you mouth and you had no other choice. <laughs> what led you to the work? Well, let's do this. Let's. I'm, I'm going to share what with you what I think I know about Dion. Okay. Would that be a fun game? Yeah, yeah. I like. I like that's that. A, that's a great game. Let's <laughs> let's play. How well do you know your partner? Okay. All right. So yeah, I love, uh, I like this. then Dion. Uh, Dion was a heavy child. Can I share that part? Anything that's public knowledge is 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 good. Heavy child and um, went to uh, signed up for oh signed up for the army uh, as a young man. Uh, served in the army, I guess, uh, then discharged. At some point, you became, you battled a drug addiction. Um, and uh, and then, I guess, uh, you went to, in. did you go to NYU uh, for theater? Yeah. And met some friends that some of whom you still work with today. Uh, and um, then at some point in your life, you decided, maybe that was before you went to theater school, I would guess, that you wanted to battle your addictions and um so then you lost the weight and uh you don't do any drugs and you actually have a very controlled relationship with food 
where you measure out your meals um, and you probably belong to three or four different uh, addiction groups, like anonymous, like kind of addiction groups that you- Not anonymous anymore. <laughs> I'll no. say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, none of that tells us why you were drawn to theater, but uh, that's some of your history that I think I have correct. Yes? Yeah, Nate. Nate's nailed a lot of it. Nate has nailed a lot of it. Now let me take a stab at uh, Nate's history. But first, before you do that, what actually drew you to the theater? I know you went to school for theater, but what drew you to it? Uh, I, um, being, being alone, um, feeling alone, being the only brown kid in the trailer park, so, uh, you know, made me feel a, a little strange, a little odd, but I always had some inborn thing that just made me feel like um, separate from others. And it wasn't just based in skin color. It was sort of the preceding thing that happens for a lot of addicts. Uh, it's the sense that I just, I'm not close to people. I'm distant. I'm isolated, even inside, even though I'm with people, I'm laughing with people, but I feel separate. So I felt that. Um, I watched a lot of television. I watched Monty Python. I watched Good Times. I found out about my black history first through Good Times. That was my first sort of contact. And I do not recommend that as a way of, you know, discovering about black history, a show about inner city black people written by white people. Uh, I'm trying to th- I'm good. thinking what would be better to learn your black history from Good Times or what's happening? <laughs> well, I, I tried it from all of them, you know, or Sanford or Sanford and Son at, or Sanford and Son. I, yeah, I, I used to watch <laughs> or the Jefferson. Well, here, here you go. Here we go. So I, I've got an Italian grandfather. Okay, I'm African American, mm-hmm. Celtic. Ooh, I knew that part, and, and I forgot to I forgot to add that part, but I knew it. And 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 uh, an Italian, and my grandfather was an old world Italian dude. We used to watch Sanford and Son together, and I remember one day he didn't know I was black. He knew I was dark skinned. Okay, so anyway, we're watching. My mother never told him that I was black. Okay, so we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Because that's obvious. He just thought you were like dark Italian. Well, here's, he just here, thought you were like dark Italian. He, right? I'll tell you exactly what he thought I was. We're watching Sanford and Son, and he said, um, he said he's laughing. He loves Red Fox. He says, "Boy, that nigga makes me laugh." And I was like, "Oh boy!" And I was like, "Mom, like we're not supposed to say that word." Like I knew that, and so I started crying. I got sent to my room. And I go to my room, and then he, my mom comes in a little while later. She says, you know how, you know how I call you a penguin, you know, you know, like uh, you're black and white. Your grandfather, he has never known that you were black. Uh, I, I was seven years old. Up until now, I always told him that you were Mexican. So, so. A lot of my racial stratification came from that day, thinking, okay, well, it's okay to be Mexican, but it's not okay to be black, and if you're black, you have to hide it. So all of that, situations like that, I just began to learn from TV that you could put on a role, and you could be somebody else, and then you could be somebody else and maybe make them love you or, or, or trick them or, or entertain them, all those things you want to do to fit in. And that's where it all started for me. And then I just got really... I don't want to say good at it, but I will just say I was very dedicated to learning how to become other people. So in that moment, which is just like, what an incredible moment, like sad and like poignant. And, and did, did you carry some shame 
from that experience about who you are? Did you feel that you were, had some sort of shame about it? Yes, of course. Shame. S-H-A-M-E. Should have already mastered everything. You know, that's how I felt. That's how I've always felt. And you think that led to your drug addiction? Well, no. I mean, that's the thing. It's a great question. I guess there's no simple answer to that question. No, I mean, it's a, cup, it's a bunch of stuff, and the scientists are still trying to work it out, you know. Um, I, I do know that to kill the pain, I went for anything I could go to that was not other people. Because other people were just so painful to interact with that I went to any substance I could find, you know, uh, sugar, alcohol, masturbation, whatever it was that was not other people, until that didn't work. My body gets really fat. The drugs and alcohol get me in trouble. I almost get kicked out of NYU graduate acting and all that stuff. And so then I was like, all right, I got to try it some other way. So when you guys met me <clears throat> in 2005 or so, maybe I met Kevin in 2003, <clears throat> I was basically coming out of just like a lifetime of really not knowing how to interact with people. But I found this improv thing, and it was so unbelievable. I mean, everybody was so fast and so creative, but I couldn't figure out like how, why was I like not able to get along with people or be comfortable? Well, it's because I had no skills about how to just be a friendly dude backstage, you know, and it, and it was a lot of learning, a lot of learning, you know. How did you recognize that that was something you needed to do? Well, you know, Let's see. You just get a vibe, you know, like I was grumpy. I just felt like I was always grumpy and not mm -hmm. wanting to rehearse. And everybody seemed to want to be around each other as much as they could drink and go out and stuff like that. And I just I wanted to just perform and leave. Hmm. You know, it was like that was the. The amount of interaction I could handle. You you dig L.A. because that's how it is here. <laughs> people don't hang. People don't. People. There's no community in the improv scene out here. People don't hang out after. I mean, it's because there's. You know, I don't know why. It's because you can't walk across the street to a bar. There's no bar in the theater. It's like people do their shows, they leave. So we got Dion's story from Nate. It's time to get Nate's life story from Dion. <laughs> How well do you know your Ladies partner? Ladies and gentlemen, and now Nate Stark. This round is uh, double points, double points. All right. Well, okay, here's what I know about Nate Starkey. I know that Nate performed. He did a kind of Three Stooges comedy act um, at, uh, at one of the Disney places. I think it was uh, Walt Disney World in Florida. And he was like, you know, big time, like in the sense of like really working out those 10,000 hours that you that you need to get good at something like this. And it was like day in, day out, yelling, making up their own scenarios, rehearsing scenarios, creating stuff, learning how to get all of the attention in that little area focused where it needed to be focused. So that kind of crowd savvy outdoors um, I didn't know this at all in the beginning, but I knew there was something about Nate that appealed to me. And I ran away from home when I was 17, and I used to perform outside as well, you know, panhandle or whatever. But we, we covered my story. But I, rec I think I recognized that sort of street savvy. You know, there was like, it was, there was a, just an innate understanding of how to become the fire in the room or not become the fire in the room, you know. Um, and he had the strength to just to do it. And I am suspected. I, I didn't know where he got it from. I just knew he had it. 
So I learned later that he had done that. It was a Three Stooges act. I might be getting that wrong. Maybe maybe it was also Keystone Cops or something too. Um, but it was yeah. I I th- here's what I think I know about Nate and specifically Disney. It was like a this is a fun it was at game, Disney Hollywood way. Studios, and or at that time it might have been called Disney MGM Studios, and um, he played a movie director. And w- they would make movies like fake silent movies with audience members. <laughs> is that is that correct? No. <laughs> oh Disney, man, I, somebody you're, did you're, that. You're though. mixing me up with someone else, probably. Yeah. I, the Disney MGM part was correct. He met Ashley there. They got together, and they. I don't think they performed together. I also think now I could be getting this <laughs> mixed up with somebody else. I think he spent time on a ship. <laughs> Too. I think he performed on a ship for 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 a while. <laughs> I don't know if that's accurate, but anyway, I think he performed on. <laughs> I heard he killed. I heard he killed a man once. Killed... But what kind of ship? Like an oil tanker? <laughs> he was, it was, You're like doing the bits? Deepwater Horizon. He, he for did the, a for the he did a stevedore. He did a Shirley Temple act on the, the Deepwater Horizon. Um, no, on a on a destroyer. And that's why you wanted to. That's why you wanted to work with me because, like, I had experience working <laughs> yes, with an old black the, dude. The, 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 right, the Mister. What is it? Mister Bojangles. I don't know what's what's the guy's name that she did the shows with. Uh, Bill Bojangles Robinson. Bojangles is the nickname. Bill Robinson, aka Mister Bojangles. And, but then, okay, so then there's a gap in my knowledge about Nate. Also, oh no, here's a funny thing. He grew up. He grew up in the South. And I knew that the prison thing would have to be in the South. I thought he grew up in the South. Maybe he didn't. I don't even know. Florida. Colorado. Uh, Colorado, that's right. Littleton, Littleton, Colorado. That's the South. That is the South. Outside Denver. Kevin has, Kevin, Kevin has slept in my childhood bedroom. Isn't that true? That's true. true. Yeah, that's true. Nate didn't know it at the time. Uh, He woke up in the middle of the night and I was standing there. Weird. Weird. (laughs) At some point, he came to New York City, but he also, <clears throat> after the Disney thing, he did other things locally. I guess it was in Colorado, um, and then eventually came to New York City to make a go of it. And then, and this I know for a fact, he got very involved with the People's Improv Theater. I don't know how he wandered in the door, but it couldn't have been. It was right around the time I did, and he, um, you know, began to teach and make a name for himself there. I can fill in the gap of of just before the pit, just before the pit uh, entered Nate's life. He was with a group called High Fife, and it was around the time, right before the big improv boom. If you you had to form your own sketch group or own improv group and find your own space, and they were doing stuff downtown, and it was all sketch and pretty crazy and very funny. High Fife was a solid. Solid ensemble. Thank you. I agree. How'd we do? I love, I love, I love the game. I mean, I just feel like, uh, I feel like I'm some kind of legend or something. It's like you once killed a man kind of stuff. Like, you know, they say he's from the <laughs> South, but nobody's really sure where. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like in Colorado as a teen? Were you, uh, were you a theater kid? Were you a uh, computer nerd were you a jock were you one of the partiers yeah i was a partier for sure uh i feel like i I just my whole life i've been a partier i i I think i'm fortunate uh that 
the why why do i party i mean dion has sort of explored this part of his life like why he's used drugs um uh i, I don't know i just think it's fun like i'm fortunate in that um i don't have an incredibly addictive personality um so like for example i can smoke a pack of cigarettes in like two days and then not smoke again for two months and I actually, that's mm. sort of like my MO as of late, is that I will go a couple months without smoking. I kind of quit. But then every now and then I'll be like, yeah, I want to smoke some cigarettes and I'll smoke half a pack. Um, and I don't like, you know, I don't need to drink alcohol and, you know, during, you know, but I do. And then I like wake up the next morning and feel kind of hungover and be like, yeah, I don't want that. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I used to smoke a lot of weed. I haven't smoked weed in, in, you know, occasionally if it's a party, I'll smoke some weed, but I'm not a daily weed smoker. I have, I haven't been for years and years and years. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so I, when I say I party, it's the social thing, right? Here's why I like to party. Because I'm a shy person. And that social lubricant is, I think, good for me. In that it helps me make friends and talk about myself and and get to know people. And, and without it, I'm, I'm in the corner. I'm shy. I'm, I'm You know what I mean? Uh, and I grew up that way. So getting to my history, right? My brother's a song and dance man, right? When we were kids, he's two and a half years older. He would, into, my parents would have a party. He'd jump up on the table and sing a song and do a dance, right? And I was in the corner and I'd lean over and make fun of him, you know, to the person sitting next to me. <laughs> and so, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to put myself out there like he did, but I still sort of like, I like the attention, right? And so my way of doing it was to make fun of the people who were actually uh, actually putting themselves <laughs> out there, which is, you know, which is not an admirable quality. But uh, it does take some, as Dion pointed out, some the ability to sort of like recognize a reality, a truth and be able to point that out. And, you know, that's what comedy is. Right. OK, this is so fucking mind blowing for me to hear this because I never knew this piece and I just figured out why we were together for so long. I'm your older brother because I, that's me. I, no, listen, because I could never hide. I never had the luxury of hiding anywhere. I was taller, fatter, bigger, the only brown kid, loud, and I was always thrust into the center. So I said, you know what? If I'm going to be in the center, I'm going to do the best I can with this. And that is exactly how I experienced you over the years is kind of to the side of me and like, boom, and being able to expose all my weaknesses in a way that I both found challenging, <laughs> but but was but was very um, interested in. If you were like my Joker, I swear to God, I've always felt like we were Joker and Batman. Jeez, <laughs> oh, that is so funny. Um, yeah, I'm really coming off as like not a good person in all of this. <laughs> well, we'll let history be the judge of that. Right. Well, here's the part that you don't also don't know, Dion, is that I also okay. grew up in the trailer park. Did you know that? I think that came up. I felt like that came up in one of our shows when we broke into a trailer. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I probably did. But like, who knows what I say in a show if that's true or not, right? Well, you, I think, okay, I just thought you knew so much about it, and I thought we talked about it, but maybe I didn't know that. You grew up in a trailer, No, we huh? might have. We might have. I didn't know. You know, not my, not for my entire childhood, but I spent years in the, in the trailer park, for sure. 
Um, and you know, I my family is pretty poor. Um, my you know my parents are teachers, which unfortunately in this country means that you grew up poor. <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, I, I don't know if you also knew this, but um, I grew up very inner city when I, I when I moved from the trailer park. I moved in with my mother, who was in a small apartment in downtown Denver, uh, where I so when I went to school, I was sort of stood out as well because i was the minority as well as a but as a white kid right wow yeah um so yeah but and then yeah no hold on no wait 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 can we just underscore this for a second that's freaking fascinating that is fascinating is this good underscoring That that was my attempt at underscoring literally that was some funky underscoring (laughs) maybe a little too funky and we're talking. It was too funky for it. Was too on the nose for the the race issue. That was yeah yeah. You're under every time we talk about people of color, you play the funky. Oh yeah, let's talk about people of color. Next time on People of Color with Kevin Scott with a middle aged white guy. No, I wanted to just that's I wanted hard. to just put a frame around that because I think that's fascinating that we both had such similar backgrounds, never really discussed this in depth, and that there we were. And and look, I just want to jump to the side here, and I don't want to interrupt your narrative uh, entirely. I want to get back to it. It's interesting that the prison thing, and I know we'll talk more about this later. It was it seemed like such a natural um, world for both of us to explore. And in my experience, I literally have friends from the trailer park when I started out with in kindergarten, one of whom just got out after 26 years in prison. Another guy's doing life for murder. Another guy is dead. Like it was a bad place in terms of mindset. And I just wonder if that has anything to do with why we were drawn to that whole prison world. Because there's, there's a lot of misunderstood people there, too, that are not just you know, uh, two-dimensional criminals, they're real people. And somehow I always felt there was humanity that was coming out of our show. Yeah. Uh, A lot of people I grew up with, um, you know, when you sort of gravitate towards the partiers, um, those people don't always have great outcomes, you know. Uh, And a lot of the people, a lot of them, a good number that I know about um, uh, are terrible alcoholics now or they found jesus i have a a sort of a strange percentage of friends who found jesus wow (laughs) and especially for me because like i'm very not religious at all Uh, although i did grow up with religion a lot of religion i went to catholic school um my mom belonged to a little weird cult church that i used to go to every day um oh god we're like like weird dudes like i always say like you know that look, that glazed over look in a person's eyes that you meet sometimes? It's like either that means they're a coke addict or they found mm-hmm. Jesus, right? Because <laughs> it's like an intensity that's just like, what is going on with this person? And I, just, it's like, it's hard to be around for any amount of time, right? Um, I just like, and I would like do the little Sunday schools in this little cult church. Uh, and you know, like, I should not have been alone with these adults. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, wow. us kids. I wasn't one-on-one alone, but they were not good people from, even as a kid, I knew I could sense like, this is not normal. Like, I think one thing they had us do was like, 
today we're going I want you to everyone share the cuss word that makes you most uncomfortable. What? I want you to say it out loud. Yeah. It was like some weird like est like 70s like spiritual growth thing for but these are kids, right? And wow. it's like what is going on? And it, well, I, what I remember from that time is like um the kids and the other kids in the Sunday school were like uh, they like wussed out, right? They'd be like, oh, well, mine is crap, right? Or dang it. I really don't like the word dang it. And I was like, fuck. Mine's fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and everyone was like, whoa. Like, like who? Like, really? Like, they couldn't believe I said it. And I was like, well, this is the assignment. Yeah. Like, I'm supposed to say the worst curse word I know out loud. And like, it really, I, for whatever reason, like, you know, like certain moments in your life that stick with you, that's one that sticks with me is like how annoyed I was with all the other kids who wouldn't say a bad cuss word, even though they were asked to, you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Well, Nate, you're a very outspoken guy. You always speak your mind about politics, social issues, um, what have you, you know, you're, you're not afraid to voice your opinion and you're not afraid to make people angry, you know, when they hear it. Is that something you've always been aware of? Like from that moment at this, this cult church, that that was sort of a gift or a responsibility? Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I hadn't really thought of it to, before, to be honest with you. I hadn't connected those two things in the way that you just did. Uh, so that's interesting. Something for me to think about. I'm also not a person who's, who's heavy into self-reflection. Like, I don't like thinking about myself too much. You know what I mean? I much prefer thinking about other people and, and asking asking the questions and 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 that whole thing, which I think is a good, good uh, lends itself towards improv well, right? Um, but also, you know, you, you got to be able to find your deal, too, in improv. So, you know, it's both. It's, it's like you got to be comfortable with who you are enough to get up there and, like, show something of yourself. But I think maybe the more, you know... You can be a good team player, though, too, and not necessarily be the one who's getting all the jokes. And that requires you need to really be good at listening and you need to have good manners. Right. And that's what I didn't have. I mean, that is what I can tell you I did not have is good manners. I When I came in, first of all, big part of the story that I missed was I first got out of graduate school and I did some stuff, Shakespeare in the Park, and was doing all kinds of different real legitimate like theater and then I stumbled into a drop-in Second City class in New York City, and Kevin Scott was the leader. He was the teacher. Me? Kevin was my first official New York City improv teacher that was outside of, of, of NYU grad acting, which was not the same as, you know, Chicago improv stuff. So anyway, I got into it with Kevin, and I just loved it. And I loved Kevin. I mean, I have always loved Kevin. I have found Kevin to be the most approachable um, uh, kind, um, avuncular, willing to sort of give you a little tip here or there that you could actually listen to. Let me rush through the rest of my history so I can get to the Kevin Scott part, right? Um, uh, so sometime, like, in, when I say rush through, and I'm going to go back to fourth grade real quick. And the only reason is because that was my first <laughs> real, that was my first real performance experience was in fourth grade. Uh, maybe a, a good teacher assigned me the lead role in a, a play that we were doing in the fourth grade. And so, um, and actually it was an audition, right? They auditioned us and it was to play the lion in an African folk tale. Uh, and we built the masks and we played, you know, the parts and and everyone had to do a roar 
and whoever had the best roar got to play the lion. And I by far had the best roar, right? Because of the voice thing, right? <laughs> so that was my first performance experience. And uh, and I was, you know, that sort of like hooked me because it was like the first time when I didn't have to be shy. It's like someone was saying, here's an excuse for you to act out. And it doesn't make you an asshole. It doesn't make you rude. It doesn't make you an attention seeker. It's like, we're asking you to do it and you have permission to do it. And I was like, fuck yeah, this is amazing, right? Um, I get to perform and I don't have to feel like I'm, you know, needy, <laughs> which mm. I was. Everyone's needy, right? Yeah. Um, so that's my first real performance experience. Then later on, uh, you know, I did the sh- high school shows and and um, and discovered friends and partying and, and how I could be a person, a social person. And and those things sort of, you know, battled each other for a while in my life and and then my stepmother told me about an audition for Comedy Sports of Denver. Uh, so I auditioned and I got in. So that's sort of my, that's my real performance life began with that. Um, How I, old were you when you did Comedy Sports? I was 17. Uh, 17-ish, maybe, maybe 17 to 19, somewhere in there. I was too young to drink in the bar, but I did it anyways until my 21st birthday when everyone was celebrating my 21st birthday and the management found out I had been drinking there for several years <laughs> under the age of 21. Ah. And then I could no longer drink at that bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we were having a talent show in fifth grade, okay? We we're going to have a big talent show. And the teacher threatened to... T- she knew I wanted this. This is what I really wanted. I wanted to be in the fifth grade talent show. And she threatened to take it away from me a couple of times because of my behavior, my behavior in class, I couldn't focus. I was all over the place. I was in an advanced class, but I was always like distracting people to the side and stuff like that. And sarcastic and, you know, not a good student. Anyway, so she was threatening to take away the talent show. And so I'd written this skit. It was the first time I'd written a skit. I was a statue in the park and I would stand up and a guy would come in and he would sit to read his newspaper and I would tap him on the shoulder and then I would change positions. And then he'd look up and the statue had changed positions. Okay. So then, so two, two guys were, two guys came in and into the park. We're in front of the whole school. Okay. We're in front of the whole entire school in the gymnasium, the teachers, everybody in the whole school is there. And I'm up on the, the stage. And now my teacher is saying, don't you deviate from the script. You better. She was pregnant. Her face was really red and she was threatening me. Um, don't you dare deviate from that script. Don't you improvise, basically. And I said, I won't, I won't, I promise, I promise. So we rehearsed it, rehearsed it. We got up there. It's the big day, and I'm standing up there. And I tap the one guy, and it makes him think that it's the other guy on the bench, right? And so I switch positions, tap, switch positions, and the freaking school goes nuts, mm, dude. Good. All of the kids are cheering and they're like and i'm like and mrs hikes the teacher she's in the wings over to the left and she can't she's like i so well she's just watching me very intensely so that i don't deviate from the script and i take the belt my mom had made me this golden toga thing and i took the belt off and i held it over my head and i snapped it above my head and i said do you want me to, this was not in the script. I said, do you want me to strangle him? And they all went, yes, yes, yes. And Miss Hikes is like spitting from the wings. She wants to kill me. But here is what I noticed and this changed my entire life. 
she cannot cross those 15 feet to end the show. She can't stop me because she she doesn't want to d- defile that ancient honored, you know, space on stage. I'm in the spotlight and she can't and I am run I am running the school. Right then in that moment, I was running the entire school. Nothing was going to move forward until I finished with that bit. And what I realized was, I got into a lot of trouble later and whatever and I finally let go of it. But I realized that when it's actually safer in the spotlight because people are so afraid to come into the spotlight. Well, not only safer, but like that's like what power, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, did, I did want to share one quick high school moment that is an improv moment uh, when we had a substitute teacher in our either speech and drama or theater, like acting one class. And she had us just reading from a play. Uh, in class, but she didn't have a copy of the play because there weren't enough. Mm-hmm. So when it would come to be my turn to read, I just started making shit up <laughs> and totally didn't read. Like I started like my next part uh, in the play and then just went off the book. And I don't know why I did it, but I just like in the moment, I was like, she doesn't have a play. She has no idea of knowing whether or not like she doesn't know what this play is about. She's never read this play. She doesn't know. She's just trying to kill time. So I'm going to go off. <laughs> and I just went off. And the class was like, it's that wonderful, like, people are trying not to laugh, but digging it so much. You know <laughs> yes. what I mean? Thought it was so funny, but trying not to give away the, the secret, the secret joke that we were all, harmless secret joke, yeah. right? That we're all playing on this teacher. Um, except for, and then inevitably there's, and it's like a personality thing, right? Like there's the one person in class who's like, that's not what it says, <laughs> who had oh, to tell thank, on me. Thank you, Sandra. Like, Why? Thank you, Sandra. Yeah, exactly. Why? What is that? There's a common theme to both of your childhood theater stories, and that's about breaking rules of transgression, the power in that, the freedom in that, but also the the joy in that. Clearly, your examples show that people loved you breaking rules. And, you know, Dion pointed out the spotlight is a safe space in the same way that at Disney World, you're out in public, but they all paid admission. You know what I mean? There, it's it is a safe public public place, and I, I wonder if hmm. you find improvisation to be a place where you can break rules safely. And you know, is you know, is shackled an accident? Is it the race thing that brought you to the defiant ones, or is it the criminality and rule breaking that brought you to it? Well, it's a whole welter of things, you know, and they just it was kind of a little bit of a perfect storm. You know, I, w- I want to read a quote here from Jonathan Pitts, the executive director of the Chicago um, Improv Festival. He said this. He had this to say of Shackled. He said, hands down, the, mm-hmm. the, hands down the best new show that I saw at the New York Unscripted Improvised Theater Festival. And um, th- so and I'm not bra- I'm not bragging. I didn't think of our show that way. I just knew I had to do it. Shackled, by the way, was not fun to do all the time. We'll get into that. And there's one other quote, and then I'm going to leave the quotes behind. Uh, This guy, Johnny Harkness from ImprovisationNews.com wrote, Damn, Dion Flynn and Nate Starkey uh, put on one hell of a show. Shackled wasn't just a great improvised show, 
but a microcosm of all of improv itself. And I, 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 that's, those are really big words. And I'm not standing behind those saying, listen up, everybody, know this. But I'm saying uh, we weren't thinking that way. We weren't saying let's create that or that. But, but I, somehow we stumbled into something that did end up being very symbolic of what improv is. You're stuck together. You don't get along. You've got to get along. You've got to work this thing out. How we got there, and then it became, then it ended up, I guess they figured that out in the Defiant Ones, that it was a, a metaphor for our country, you know, that we are shackled together like that, like it or not, or get along or not. And, um, yeah, we, I just think we both had good instincts about what, what, what maybe ingredients could, could make a good show. That was the initial offer I had, and then we did a lot of improv and stuff, which made it what it was. Um, so I don't know if now's the time to go into all that, but I just wanted to say those things. Let's let's get into it. Did you know who your characters were? What was the process to come up with those characters? And were you always the same guys? Did they evolve over time? Did you? We definitely changed them. Definitely, definitely changed them. Well, I tried. I tried. There's only the one character, and that's the character that we that you see in the videos that we made together that really ever worked, in my opinion. For, for me um, I tried other characters and I tried to be and you know Dean and I had to do the, the real exploration into like how to play status with one another and how that dynamic was going to work between us um, and so we and I think you know um, we landed in the place with uh, my character basically being the lower status character um and i mean it, it goes back to the disney work right you you said three stooges and it was three stooges it was sort of like mark's brothers three stooges the best compliment i ever had it was looney tunes right the best compliment i ever had was someone after seeing a set said like um you guys are like a live action cartoon <laughs> like yeah that's exactly what we're going for we want to be a live action cartoon and so i think dion and i had that dynamic we had a three stooges dynamic a little bit um that we're both were dumb right and dion was probably just a little less dumb than than i was right is that fair yeah 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 no we had blind spots we definitely had blind spots and uh he could to be fair i also want to say that i i, I don't think i was as capable of uh working off stage as i am now you know so we kind of had to just do the show to figure it out because I just, I just, I don't know. I felt maybe Nate didn't experience it this way, but I felt like I just threw up blocks to working on it outside in some ways and maybe other ways we did. I don't know. I'm getting lost and confused in what's true and what's not. But, but, but the status stuff, yes. Nate, one, okay, one time Nate very notably played his character as kind of a yeah. Lex Luthor know-it-all guy. And I thought that was actually pretty funny. That that show kind of worked, too. Do you remember that one? That was at the UCB, right? Oh, was it? I don't remember which one. I don't. I thought it was over at the pit. No, but... we did that. That I remember trying, because I, I was really going for that. It was going to be like the evil, almost Hannibal Lecter, evil, you know. 
and racist, right? <laughs> um, and that's what I remember about that. And it's like, you know, Dean and I have talked about this before. And like, because we were playing a black guy and a white guy and the, the uh, defiant ones, a part of that was the race thing. And, and so where, how do you walk that line improvising a racist character on stage? And so I struggled with that. And I probably made choices then that I would not make today. Um, and so that was a show that Dion, you felt like that wasn't such a bad show, but I, I hated that show. I did not like that show. I did not like. I did not like trying to pull that character off. I oh, do it. I, because you didn't like being racist. I didn't like. I didn't know how to play the heavy. I didn't know how to be sinister in a way that didn't make me feel like the audience hated me. And hmm. didn't. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a good show or not. I know I didn't enjoy playing that show. I, I just was tickled by this his haughty, big voiced, smart character who almost literally had an an ascot. He may have literally been wearing an ascot um during that show. <laughs> 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 well I, I don't think I was wearing an ascot, but in my mind I definitely yeah. was. I'm, I feel better about actually the performance now hearing you say that because that's exactly the vision of myself in my own mind that I have. You know? Well, you did it because you made me see an ascot. You look, there did come up, a, there came up an issue and, and Nate and I have discussed it many times. I, I, I am definitely by it and through it and past it. And it was the use of the, 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 the N word at one point. And it was it was very it was a very tricky little um, passageway. Here's what happened: the N word came out came out of Nate's mouth in his character. Now today, um, I guess I feel like, you know, now that I really know Nate and understand him better, um, I I don't. It would be it would be very different today. I also I think he would make different choices today. Who knows? But. Here's the, the, it, it, I got scared. I literally got scared on stage. I got angry, but the anger was to cover the fear. And here's what happened. Here's what the architecture of it. Here's what happened. He used it. And then I think I might've said, don't use it. And then Nate said, well, you know, we have to be able to do whatever we need to do on stage. That was sort of the basic external premise. Now I could run with that and, and say that Nate was wrong, but I don't believe today that Nate was wrong. Here's what happened to me. I was trying to cover that that word wounded me, Dion. That word itself wounded me. And I kept trying to play a tough character on top of the wounding. And what I would do today is I would let the audience see me wounded. And I would have gotten by it. So instead, what I set about to do was not reveal my vulnerability and fix and change my partner, which I would never do that today. In life or in art, I would say, you know what? Um, I would let my face go slack and let people see maybe the tears forming around my like mouth and lips or whatever. Uh, but I didn't want to do that. And when we discussed it afterwards, I didn't reveal to Nate my vulnerability. I just went after him. And then we didn't talk for like three years. And we got reunited doing an Eminem Mars improv for a company. And we got reunited. And then we had our first conversation about it. And then we worked our way through it. That's part of how I remember it. And I'm sure 
that Nate does not remember the way I remember it. No, no, that's not exactly how I remember it. But, you know, uh, the essentials are true, right? How you felt at the moment, that's the important thing, right? It, the, the specifics aren't, aren't as important. But, uh, yeah, uh, my thinking behind it was, you know, um, really, when you really get lost in the improv, right, it's this, the character scripts the show for you, right? It's not... In the, maybe this isn't right, but this is my the way my viewing of it is that uh, the actor doesn't have to make choices. The character in the scene makes choices for the actor, right? Th that sounds maybe you know kind of uh, hoity-toity or something. I don't know, but that's that's sort of what I go for, right? So that I'm really lost in that character, and so that's where I was coming from when I went to that place. And if and and you know you're never completely divorced from, from the actor. So like that director's eye from the outside looking in, like I see what's happening. It's not like I'm so lost that I don't still have that ability to like make good choices for, you know, the structure of the show and stuff like that, that, that is the director's job and the improvisation, not the actor's job. Right. I, I still have that, that eye, but my reasoning was like, if I'm an actor in a movie and I'm playing a racist, I can use that word and doesn't mean that me, the actor, is a racist, right? Right. And we've seen movies with that word. And I, I'm, did they use the word in the Defiant Ones? I'm not sure if they did or not. Uh, but we've seen plenty of movies where they where the where the bad guy in the movie uses that word. And so I'm playing the bad guy, right? So I can use that word. But what I learned was that how much power that word has, and especially when you're not exposed expecting that word to happen not only to the person i'm on stage for the person i'm on stage with but for the audience too right like they probably didn't come to the theater to hear that word and it's probably why i wouldn't use that word on stage today but um at the time i think my logic was pretty sound and and at the end of the day it's is it comedy or is it theater, right? And like you go to the theater to be, to have emotions, to be moved, to have an experience. And, and sometimes that means that there's a bad guy that you don't like and, and et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so those are all the thoughts that run through my head. As far as mine and Dion's relationship, like, yeah, I didn't know. I mean, Dion, Dion has it right in the sense that I did not realize the extent to which he was upset uh, by by my character in the show using that word, which was, you know, Nate using that word. Um, and I don't think it was three years, but maybe, maybe, maybe it was. I don't know. Um, uh, but also, let me just say that in our first, part of the reason why I thought I had permission to use the word also was that in our first improvisation that we recorded, I used the word. I'm so glad you remember that. I'm so glad that you remember that. And you laughed. You really enjoyed it. Yep. Yep. And I, I remember. I yep. even remember the line. It was like we were chained together, and and I said I was going to. And again, we're experimenting with characters, and I was a southern guy, and, and uh, fairly or unfairly, southern guy, southern guys are always racist, right? So um, I, I remember I threatened to saw your leg off, and then. So that I could be free. He was gonna carry. He was gonna. He was gonna carry my leg around as his right. lucky nigger foot, and I and I died. I died in the rehearsal room, and I thought it was funny, and I think it's funny now. Um, and so, well, so, but that actually brings out another mysterious element to this whole thing, because it's about intent and agreement. 
it really is about consent, intent, and agreement. Like, and at the time that it was used at the and power, and 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 the time that it came out in our show, I would you know I'd be the first one to make a case for everything you just said about you were being honest. You were being yeah. honest to your character and to that world, and I agreed. And then I think I didn't have a way of talking about it and bringing it up. It's like sex. Honestly, it's like sex. Like you could be on your honeymoon and your wife wants to have sex and there's an agreement and you're going to do it. But then some night, three years later, you can't just do it if she doesn't want it. And then she has the right to say no. So it's an ongoing negotiation. Right. And uh, I didn't to be, you know, to be fair, I didn't know the rules had changed for me in that moment or were going to. It just surprised me. And I didn't have any word that I could use to take all your power away in one word as I saw it, you know, and uh, and I'm glad I didn't look. I'm glad that it's it's amazing to me that the landscape of that little passage, that little moment between two fellow artists who have who had spent scores and scores of hours rehearsing and and buying costumes and and serving this show um i, I just want to say i just want to say this i think it's a valuable moment i think it's a moment that's still alive in the retrospect i think there's always things to learn from it and to d- dissect it um Nate has since been a guest at my um, my improv class that I teach, uh, improvisersmindset.com, uh, weekly. And uh, I, 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 Nate and I are like brothers. In my, in my mind and in my body, I hold Nate in a position of like a brother um, that you occasionally fight with at uh, a holiday get-together, but you love him. And I, and I love Nate. You know, I love Nate. We've been through a fucking lot together. And we're, those shows were intense, dude. We would bleed. We would kill each other sometimes in, in the middle of the show. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever do a show where one of you died earlier and had to remain a corpse for the no. rest of the show? It was always at the end. I feel like I have a memory of going for a minute or two at the end of the show. Yeah. Right? Um, with Dion dead. But not, not more than that. Can I ask you guys about, like... A compare and contrast between doing a straight up improv show, which you both have done a, a ton of, where, where there's nothing other, there's nothing decided except the cast, the title, and maybe the structure. And then doing something like Shackled, where there's all this intention about theatricality. You're getting costumes, props, you know, it's, it's a very specific world and very specific characters. Was it really hard to sort of figure out? how to negotiate, you know, saying no to all that freedom? Uh, yeah, I think the the latter, the Shackled is a more difficult show for me personally to pull off than the show where there are no uh, set up characters and, and situations and, and that sort of thing. Um, and now part of it also is just like you're going 60 minutes with it's like back to what you were saying before is like the danger right like we're both attracted maybe to some danger of like we're we're chained together we can't edit to another location we're going 60 minutes and we're the same people for the entire time um it's incredibly challenging to me 
uh, very difficult. And you figure out, I think what we had to figure out together was how we navigate that territory and, and how we give that show an arc. And, you know, nothing that would happen in the show is, was thought of ahead of time. And for a while, I would, like, go into a show with, without even my character thought ahead of time until I sort of realized, as we're discussing, that I need to, to like, the, the one, this character is the one that really works the best. So I just stuck with that sort of dumb, dumb guy character who I love to play. Uh, and it's sort of like the low status guy who surprises you by being higher status in in some moments, and you get a lot of you get a lot mm-hmm. of comedy out of that, right? Was your dumb guy based on or inspired by anyone you actually knew? It was inspired by you, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you. I was waiting for that. And we're back. You're the dumbest guy I know. <laughs> do you, did you guys do any like committee dell'arte training? Because you're both very good at playing sort of you know types, not stereotypes, but yeah. archetypes. Yes, like, the answer is yes for know, me. I don't think that, that we did together. Oh, we did. Well, no, I mean, yeah, oh, before oh, I arrived on like, scene, like I've done that sort of training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my Disney training—that's what my Disney experience was, right? It was like it was basically comedia, right? Um, <laughs> it was finding those formats i guess um i don't know how to talk about it very intelligently but i'm pretty sure that's what we were doing (laughs) look here's what here's what i'll add i want to talk about the compare and contrast question that you asked but i also want to read this real quick this was our little blurb two murderers one black and one white are chained by the ankles that's all that's certain at the start of shackle the 45 minute darkly comedic theater piece everything else is improvised Sometimes the fugitives agree, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they live, sometimes they die. Up against the elements each and each up against the elements each other and their own animalistic desires to escape what lay behind them, actors Dion Flynn and Nate Starkey have been hurtling into the unknown reaches of improvised theater together to the delight of New York City audiences, Upright Citizens Brigade, People's Improv Theater to 2012 New York Improvised Theater for years. The fully improvised Shackled explores all that we run from as humans, all that we run toward, and what keeps us together. Do we ever get there? Come and see. That was our little blurb, and I think that maybe you could put that at the top, you know, because I think um, I should have read that a long time ago. And I just want to give my little compare and contrast about doing same characters versus improv. Now, you have to understand, I was... I was not honoring anything anyone had established in shows anyway for years. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was later that I realized that what people are setting up, you need to honor and call back to and build with. Um, so for me, it was it was very committed and, and frightening. Um, what I noticed is that you'd get into these doldrums and you couldn't edit your way out of it. That was probably the hardest part for me because you'd have to just sit there and kind of wait. Time was actually another player in the show because I would have nothing left to say. I'd have no convincing burr in my shoe to bring up or a problem. We're just sitting there and then something would have to arise and we would have to trust that something was going to just come up. And invariably it did. You know, and it wasn't script driven. Now we watched uh, the fugitive, you know, the 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 fugitive movies, a couple of them, separately and together, and we tried to establish like where do they talk? And what we noticed was there was a pattern in these movies that when they were casing a joint, 
<clears throat> looking at a place that they were going to it was a turpentine camp in the uh the the Sydney Poitier movie um they were they were you know sort of peeking up over this rock and contemplating their next move and we discovered that was a good time where you know that was a tool we were going to use is to be about to go break into some place and then we'd get into some philosophy history and stuff and uh and like that but you know those tools emerged i think over time, we just kind of discovered what worked, and we just had to deal with each other in every single way possible. There was, you couldn't go off and invent other business. You couldn't go into a little mini fridge and invent a beer, you know, like that. Right. It really is a good uh, exercise in, in being a good improviser in that any little thing is you can never underestimate how important every single thing that happens on that stage is. And to Dion's point, like the time, right? So it's like, it's, it sounds like almost a weird thing to say, but it's just like, I got to figure out how to get through this, you know? Yeah. And for me to waste anything that's happening is, is not helpful. Right. It's like, I got, here's, I have very few things with me here and to, to not honor or deal with or delve into, you know, delve into the minutia of every little moment between us in order to get to the end of the show. And you know, it almost sounds like, like you're not having a good time or something because you're just really hoping you can get to the end. You know, I, I want this to be over, you know, um, which isn't really how I feel. Which isn't really how I feel at the time, but it's it's also it is kind of how I feel at the time. It's like, how are you going to get there? It's, it's, no, you it's know, true. It's sort of a little bit nerve wracking. Yeah. Do you guys like that? Do, do do the nerves help you perform better? Like, you know, when I think of a show like Shackle that has it eliminates so much freedoms, it really I get anxious just thinking <laughs> about it. Let alone performing. Does that help you better as a performer improviser to have your nerves? up is it something you seek out this could be revisionist history or whatever but it's hard to disprove this um some part of me trusted that nate had my back i believed that he had the talent the skill the the mental uh strength and creativity to help us get through this and that i could rely on him to do that and the setup, the equation that we created for ourselves forced us into an area that I knew would possibly happen, but that I could never get there without the equation being set up. Like, I wasn't just going to wander into a 47th minute with another dude in the same scene unless you literally, like, chained me into it because I would edit, I would get out of it or whatever. And when we got there, when we found ourselves in the 47th, 48th, 49th, 55th minute of the same show, mm -hmm. I found, I can speak for myself, I found new, new things. Like there was new vulnerability and stuff that I would be willing to exchange with, with him. And it was, was, the journey for me was we didn't get along in the beginning generally in the show. We, we just, we were chained together. We saw an opportunity. We ran and now we're stuck together. And then there's a moment you realize this is the asshole I'm with. Now what are we going to do? You know? Um, and nerve wracking? No. We would, sometimes we would sleep. Um, we would sleep in the beginning. Like we'd be unconscious. And we'd start up really slow. There was no pressure to get anywhere right in the beginning. Because we knew we had to, a long time to go. 
So I remember literally being eyes closed, snoring in the beginning of the show. And that's how I dealt with my nerves. You know, and it goes back to what we were saying before also is this this dynamic between um, you know, uh, just being a good listener and bringing something to the party, right? Uh, so it's that good manners thing. Like good manners, if you have good manners, you listen to what people are saying. You don't interrupt. Um, you share, right? These are all good manners things. But another good manners thing is if you're invited to a party, you bring a gift. So show up with something, right? Not, not. I'm not saying like plan it ahead, but like bring it, right? And so here's the thing that Dion is is I never have to worry about Dion not bringing a gift to the party, right? Like he's going to make choices, um, and so and Dion said he tr had trust in me. Yeah, I had his back. It's like having his back is just waiting for him to do something and then commenting on it and making something of it and allowing myself to be. Like, that is interesting. I need to dissect this and talk about it and get to the bottom of what this guy's doing right now, right? <laughs> so that's how we get to the end of the show. Is like, there's nothing. I don't want to waste anything. There's no moment on stage, a little grunt that Dion makes while he's sleeping. You know, there, there's always something going on with <laughs> Dion. So there's I'm never at a loss for what to <laughs> what to focus on because there's plenty right in front of me, right? Yeah, yeah, that's just a, that's a good observation, Nate. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. There's like you've got there's always as you study improvisers, as you guys know, we're all teachers, and you 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 have students that are fountains, and you have students that are the users of what comes out of the fountains, and you need to have both. You need to be a fountain, and you also need to be one who makes something out of what comes out of yours and other people's fountains. So that was that's a really interesting observation. Um, I was at a place in my improv where I was generally always generating stuff, and what I noticed about Nate is he's he's able to sub to take his ego down and make use of this nut job who's out there just throwing things out. And I noticed that that was not lost on me that Nate was was, you know, busily uh, making things work, you know, making things work. And I was doing, um, you know, I was I was less seasoned at at <clears throat> at the and part, you know, I mean, at the at the no, at the at the justify part. I was less seasoned and less practiced at justifying what others were doing. And tuning into them is important, to be honest, as embarrassing as that is to say. And I get that now. Like, I really get, I feel like a shackled show today would be extremely different. <laughs> It'd be the two old guys that kind of would have stayed. They probably wouldn't have taken the opportunity to run. <laughs> yeah, it's safe in here. It's safe it's in here. It's three meals a day. Well, that would be the character. Like, So I would play characters sometimes that would like make that argument. Like, I want to go back. I think we both had gone to that that direction before, Dion, <laughs> where we'd be like, yeah. at one point, be like, yeah, we did. let's go back. You were in love with someone back at the prison in one of our shows, and uh, you wanted to get back. Isn't that right? I, probably. What's your favorite Shackled you ever did? I can't remember them. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, like, it's, it's true. It's uh, true. 
honestly, it's the stuff we it's the stuff we put on video with you because that's immortalized, right? Let me just say this because I don't know how much longer you know we're gonna keep recording. I just want to put on record as well that uh, your part in in Shackled, Kevin. That that not only did you direct and uh, video those film those those bits we did, um, but me and this goes back to my history as well me coming to new york after doing years of short form improv and then the disney experience where again improvising uh with loose scripts and stuff um and then coming to to new york and getting immediately involved in sketch comedy uh and still wanting to do some improv and like i remember before i moved to new york city i visited chicago and i saw improv olympic and i was like uh I don't like this, right? This is like they're making each other laugh, but they're not making me laugh. Mm. Um, and you should you should always try to make your scene partner laugh, of course. But it was like inside joke kind of stuff where they were like talking about people that I didn't know. Mm. And, you know, it's like this is maybe it was just a bad experience, bad show. The one I went to, I don't know. And then I went to New York and, and I saw some UCB stuff. And again, it's like this is feels so insular insular and I'm not a part of it. And you have to be a part of it to appreciate it. And I don't, it's just, I feel, it doesn't feel good. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. So it's like, I'm going to do sketch now because I still want to do comedy, but this improv scene doesn't inspire me. I saw the ass cat show and it's like, okay, now this I get, I understand what those other people were trying to do. Mm. These are people who are funny enough and talented enough to do this thing that I saw the other people trying to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I saw Centralia. And I was actually, uh, yeah, it was Centralia at the time. It wasn't. It was no longer Burn Manhattan. It was Centralia, and now that inspired me. That made me like that's some. That's what I want to do. I want to do what those guys are doing. So um, that's sort of like. And then the first thing I did is like I, I somehow befriended you guys, introduced myself to you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone introduced us or not, and I right away hired you to come teach my little ensemble to do improv because it's like this is what i want to do the what these guys are doing so you really had a lot to do with with my development as an improviser and my the skills that i brought to my show with dion i learned a lot of that from you guys so i appreciate that oh thank you that's good to hear that's why we did it i guess was to put <laughs> something out there that people liked yeah yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then and then leading up to the shackled, yeah. then like to have you film and direct those those shorts was perfect, right? Yeah. Do you guys remember us all getting yeah, into? I, we, I seriously. Do you remember us all getting into a rehearsal room over at uh, Simple Studios when we were trying to figure out how to translate it from the stage to little vignettes? Do you remember that that those yeah. work days? Yep. Yeah. Those were fun. Yep. That was that took me that took me right back to my Disney days. That's exactly what we used to do. Oh, I see. We would like take improvisation. We would like take little improv moments from from the set set we do. And we'd go back in the rehearsals and we'd develop them and figure out how to make it a sketch. And it, the actual uh, little scenes that we filmed, as much as we sort of tried to plan those, I think the best stuff was the stuff that we was improvised in the moment. Still, yeah, I would agree. I think my favorite bit was when. His down south sheriff and my FBI guy are talking about his knife. And he ordered a bunch of knives, and it turns out he had planted them on guys for years. <laughs> but his address, <laughs> his address was on each knife. <laughs> That's like they were monogrammed with my name. Yeah. Or yeah. And he was like, I gotta go make a phone call. And he gets off and he leaves the, the, the screen. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, you asked what our favorite bits were. That one I liked. That one I liked a lot. I also, I think my favorite though. Uh, and when you come, this is about ego, right? Because this is the thing that I was most proud of myself for coming up with something funny, probably, right? Because, <laughs> um, uh, like, in Dion, in your example, that was your that was your bit. That was your oh monogram, like that was your joke, right? <laughs> uh, which was a great joke. Which, uh, but the joke that I was most proud of was the uh, the Mima bit, oh. where where you're where Dion okay. was talking about. Um, I, I don't remember exactly anymore, but you wanted me to role play with you about what you were going to like tell your girl when you met her or something. And, and I introduced the girl's grandma. <laughs> that is one of the most brilliant moments that I missed it in real time. I missed how brilliant it was in real time. He invent he, he, I'm, I'm hitting a rock. I'm hitting a rock trying to break the chain, but I'm doing it sort of sexually. Like, I'm going to hit that girl when I get back. I'm going to get back to my girl. And Nate's character is like sort of wide-eyed going, oh, what's that going to be like in this? And then he invents the he invents a character. He starts to play the girl, and then he invents this Meemaw character who interrupts the, the seduction and then he falls in love with his own invention of the Meemaw and goes, I'd sure like to meet that Meemaw someday. <laughs> so good. Uh, so so good. now we fall into the, pro the problem of like talking about improv moments, right? It's like they never quite translate, right? Right. Like when you asked what our favorite show was, like in a way, I think it's probably better. We don't remember them all. Like, yeah. Fortunately, those moments are on video so people can go watch the videos uh, and make judge for themselves if they're any good. But the, the trying to relay the improv moments from your actual shows uh, never quite translates, right? We, we would enter the theater... Uh, tumbling down the stairs and fall all over the audience. We're both chained up and we fall down about 32 stairs all the way down onto stage. And it would take about at least a minute and a half, if not two full minutes. There was that. I remember one where we were break. We broke into a trailer at the end, towards the end. And I was in that trailer with Nate. I could see the carpeting. I could see the walls. I'm not sure I've ever been that immersed in imaginary circumstances. That's that's one that comes to mind. Cool. That's a, that's a great feeling when you get to that place, I think. So you guys both teach, right? Nate, are you still teaching? I am not. No. Uh, I've done a few coaching gigs here and there, and I do my corporate training stuff. But uh, I'm not teaching straight up improv theater like, like I was in New York. Good for you. You finally got out. <laughs> <laughs> no i miss it i love teaching i don't i don't miss it like actively but when i do it again i'm like oh yeah, oh, yeah. this is fun i enjoy yeah. this i teach yeah. infrequently mostly when i travel I'll, yeah. i i teach to travel and i have such a right. such a good time and i think it's such a good time because i don't do it every day and it's not mm -hmm. paying my bills um, right you know what i mean it's i'm yeah. not in the grind so what's right. well as a teacher well, maybe this is a two-parter. What's like a valuable lesson you learned coming up, either from a peer or a teacher or someone that like is still with you that you repeat maybe as an improv mantra? And what is um, what is something you like to teach to people or a lesson? If someone is a young improviser listening to this, what do you want them to walk away knowing? Uh, probably were like, 
they're not, you know, the first was like the, one of the first things I was taught when I was doing comedy sports in Denver was just commit, right? And that's simple, right? But it's it's the biggest part. It's just like you got to completely commit. And that's like an acting thing, right? Um, and so I definitely teach like that's the only rule that has no exception is listen and commit. Those two things, there's never, I've, there's no such thing as an improv show where those two things aren't important. Um, and then the other thing was, I think one of you guys taught me, and maybe it was you, Kevin, but uh, it's, it's, it re, uh, relates to form, right? And uh, explore, heighten, transform. Um, Centralia taught me that, and I use it in my writing, in, in, in every, any artistic pursuit, explore, heighten, transform. Um, and for improv structure, that's, that's the most important lesson I've learned. Um, teaching, um, here's the funnest thing I like to teach students. Um, and we, we were just talking about like, oh, that fun thing of like, when you're teaching, you're like, oh yeah, this is a lot of fun. It's like when you can teach somebody something that like makes something click in their head, like they hadn't thought of it in that way before. Um, so the two, my two favorite things to teach and, and, uh, are probably just mirroring basic mirroring exercises right um and again simple right but it really is one of my favorite things to teach because it really is all improv is is mirroring um and uh, more specifically a favorite thing for me to teach is and we've been doing it in this in this podcast occasionally is that to improvise from to try this out to instead of listening and reacting to what the person says in the sense of like building a narrative. And if they're talking about uh, their teacher from the third grade or something, then you're listening to that and asking them more questions about their teacher from third grade. And then you're finding some story instead of that, do your version of that. So if someone's going to talk to you about their teacher from third grade, just wait for them to finish. Listen, of course. And then when they're done, talk about your teacher from third grade, right? Um, and just different variations of that, I think is really fun to teach people because that's sort of how people talk a lot of times. It's not like we're following this narrative all the time. A lot of times it's just like, you're waiting for your turn to share your experience. And I love teaching that in improv because it, again, to like what we're talking about earlier, like that helps us get through those shows, Dion, when like, it's like if we can just trade stories <laughs> from our characters our character stories it gets us to the end and it inspires us and it gives us a, the next step right 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 i've been reading the mike nichols book the newer biography that just came out yeah and then i've been i've been taking a deep dive into nichols and may and um i had forgotten because of I'm so much into the fast paced contemporary improv. They would just leave so much space for each other to go on runs. Yeah. Similar to what you're talking about. It's like, okay, you have the ball, you go. Yeah. And then, and it's part, partially, you know, they had space because they were in a duo. So they yeah. knew, but they also respected, I know my partner is going to give something great here that we're both right. going to be able to unpack and use later. I love, I love coaching people. Like when they're, when they start going in, I was like, I, I really push them for more details. What about like ask them questions so they give me more, more, more? Because uh, that, that's I, I like watching that improv too. I really like that trading conversation style improv. Mm. Yeah, you know, and this dovetails nicely into what do I like to put across? I like you know I trusted Nate. 
when Nate had the spotlight, I knew that what Nate was going to come out with was going to be entertaining, engaging, have something to do with the show, you know, um, smart, you know, smart, smart in general, but smart for the show. And uh, and when you when you can relax like that, you can just you can just you, you don't have to like be tense and uh, worry about that your partner's going to like mess it up or not do what they. So anyway, I guess that's the definition of trust. And so what I like to teach is, you know, I've got a classical acting training, which is rooted in relaxation. So what I like to do is I always start them with um, silence. I, I, I teach a lot with it. You can just start. Your first offers come from the person's eyebrows and their breathing and what you see them doing and, and the, the energy that's transferring between the two of you rather than some idea I had in my back pocket backstage that I'm going to bring out so that the first thing you're building has to do with what you're getting from each other rather than even the first brick being uh, some preconceived idea and then developing yourself reading stuff, knowing about history, knowing what you like, because you can get improvisers that are all yes and no and. They're all like, yeah, I agree with what you're saying, you know. That's and the, the bring, the some, bring something to the party. Bring something to the party. Yep, exactly. That's it. So I, I like the and, you know, you got to do yep. the yes and the and, you know, you, you can't just hang out and uh, sort of just go, yeah, it's so yes, 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 what you're saying. You got to add something. And I don't think Nate has credited himself enough in this conversation with, yes, he would watch carefully, and then he would always bring something back that was a twist on what I was offering, which was his own thing. Here's the thing. Dion is interesting. He is an interesting person. He's interesting on stage. He's interesting to watch. So it makes your job easy if you allow yourself to be seduced by that thing that is interesting to you, right? And you have to be an intellectually curious person as well, right? And I am. So I find Dion fascinating. So I'm never at a loss, never at a loss for what to do. <laughs> and I'm never at a loss for inspiration, right? And so when you look at it that way, improv becomes so easy. <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. about me coming up with something yep. it's about me being inspired yeah and there's always right. something to be inspired by we, certainly with dion there's always something to be inspired by but but even someone less interesting there's always <laughs> something to be inspired by there's always something interesting in a gesture a movement a sound it's all fascinating to me and so i think that's what makes maybe for for good improv is is people who are intellectually curious in that way and in conclusion, I would like to, to add, I know this sounds like just a mutual love fest, but what I want to just also add, what, what Nate is describing, and he's attributing it to me being interesting, which makes me feel good, and I love to hear that. And at the same time, it's the universe in a grain of sand idea of the, you know, of uh, in poetry. I can't, I don't know the poet, poet right off the top of my head, but Blake or somebody. Yeah, that's Blake. The ability to see the universe in a grain of sand is really with the individual. So I'm crediting Nate for his ability to find interesting things in people who are obviously, you know, uh, wacky and interesting or people who are maybe not so obviously, because that is something I've learned is that with that mindset, you can find something to get excited about in, in almost anything. And that is the that is. Um, a variable that each improviser can work on themselves. I, yeah, I think it's it's kind of twofold in that, A, just work with people who are brilliant and interesting. Boom. 
B, everyone is brilliant and interesting given the space to be so. Yeah. And then the flip side of it is you, this is the bring, bring something to the party. You have to bring what's interesting about you to the party and, and let people see it. Yes. Share yourself. I always say share yourself. I like to say you are your first character and you are your best character. Um, any last thoughts you guys want to, want to throw out there? Since we're here, anything that should be on the record? I just, for, in terms of record, I just also wanted to talk about um, how great our coaching from Matt Higgins was. Yep. Uh, and how great Matt Higgins is in general. Um, and how he really is one of my favorite improvisers, if not mm -hmm. my favorite improviser. The best. I'm so lucky I get to improvise with one of my all-time favorite improvisers and comedy thinkers, and we've been doing it for several decades. It's just sort of he's just sort of genius on on some some other level kind of thing. I think the polite way to say it is he's touched. Um, but he would take us uh, around the city and not in a rehearsal studio, but uh, out in the world and tell us to play around with status and and uh, it's just you know uh, I, I, without getting too much into like every specific of stuff we did but his his sort of training ideas are sort of next level in a way that was really interesting and uh you know inspiring this is nate nate's talking about uh matt taking us out for shackled preparation because matt played a cop in one of them and mm -hmm. uh helped us out and 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 he he had us go wander around in midtown and try to find people to do good deeds for together so we did that and we had to try to kind of approach mm. people and 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 it was a real Nate suggested it and I was um you know I was very anti coaching you know I don't want anybody getting in messing with my process or whatever but I you know trusted Nate and I said okay let's do it and I do not regret it and those that that's also my final statement is um I do not regret shackled it was an incredible experience and a very large incredible, multifaceted, emotional, difficult, rewarding experience, which I am just very, very proud to have been a part of with Nate and with you, Kevin. So that's my final word on Shackled. That was the final word on Shackled. <laughs> awesome, guys. Where can people find yous individually? Yeah, you can find me at www.dionflynn.com and also at improvisers spelled with an o-r improvisers mindset i have a free workshop every wednesday at 1 p.m and then i have some levels that uh cost money but take you into deeper water with with legitimate acting and in and improv brilliant uh don't look for me i'm hiding <laughs> Um, I really don't have anything to promote. I'm just like writing my little stories and, you know, uh, hoping that I sell, sell them. And that's all I'm doing. I'm really not putting myself out there a whole lot. For anyone listening to this podcast, invite me to so do something because uh, I'm bored sometimes. I, I invited him. He was great. Everyone loved yeah. him. I appreciate that. I had a good time. Thanks for coming on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. This is my podcast voice. So I sound officially <laughs> like a podcast. Delightful. That's perfect. It's very Casey Kasem. Oh, is it? Give us some Casey Kasem, Dion. Put your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> Long distance dedication. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> That's pretty good. It's a little bit of um, Carol Channing. It's kind of Carol Channing with a hairy chest. Well, hello, Jolly. A kiss on your hand, maybe quite continental, <laughs> yeah. but diamonds are a girl's best friend. Feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. The year's 1988. Well, there you have it. That was our For the Record chat on Shackled with Dion Flynn and Nate Starkey. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying it, you can support it directly on our page on anchor.fm. If you want to send us a message, we are centraliaimprovisation at gmail.com. Also check us out on the Instagram, the Facebook, and the Twitters. And we'll see you next time on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast.